Today, we continue looking at the context in which you have a married person married to a, an unbelieving person. Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians, if you've been with us, you know that this is a book that Paul wrote about five years after he first visited Corinth. You'll see a timeline behind me where he came to Corinth around uh, A.D. 48, and then about five years later, he wrote back to the Corinthians from Ephesus because Chloe and her people had come to Paul and said, Paul, people are not listening to what you said when you were with us. And Paul addressed a whole host of issues. He started off talking about the unity of the church, and then he began to talk about the nature of the body, particularly about sex within marriage, as we'll see in chapter 7. Then he goes on to talk about food and the freedoms we have within food and how to watch our behavior around others and yet also walk in grace. And then he talks about worship in chapters 11 through 14. And then chapter 15, the crowning jewel of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the resurrection and how central the resurrection is to all of our ethics and our living and our way of life. And so in this context, Paul has been answering a question that they wrote to him about sex within marriage, and it causes Paul to just go and address almost every scenario in the context of Christian marriage. And today, we continue looking at the context in which you have a married person married to an unbelieving person. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll read uh, from verse 12 down through verse 16. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? Now, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Now, I have to admit, this sermon um, is a hard sermon to preach. And it's a hard sermon to preach because there are people that you know, that I know, that are in this very situation. And Paul's main point in this passage is very simple. And it's very countercultural. And one day, if we're on YouTube, this this video is going to get cut and people are going to look for my home address. But it's this. Stay married 
unless your unbelieving spouse deserts you. Stay married. Stay married unless your unbelieving spouse deserts you. Now, in this context, Paul, of course, is talking about uh, sex within marriage. People said, well, if we should just be holy, let's abandon sex in marriage. And Paul says, no, 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 sex is good. You should enjoy sex as a married couple. That's what it's for. It's for the glory of the Lord. It's for the procreation of children. It's for the intimacy of husband and wife. And then he goes through and he starts addressing individual specific situations. And he says to the rest in verse 12, Who's the rest? It's all those he hasn't yet addressed, which would be a believer married to an unbeliever. He says, you should stick it out. Believing husband or wife, you cannot divorce your spouse. Stay with them. And then he says in verse uh, 15 and 16, the passage we're looking at today, but, gives a contrast, but if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them do it. So, the main point is you stay married unless your unbelieving spouse deserts you. Now, I want to invite you into the marriage of two couples. The first couple is um, Sarah and John. Sarah became a Christian very early in their marriage. John is not a Christian. Sarah is a full-time mom. She is active in women's Bible studies at church, and between caring for her husband and her kids and attending Bible studies and shuttling the kids to soccer, uh, she is uh, trying to be attentive to her husband. She is very good at maintaining balance. If you saw Sarah, you would just think she has it all together. Her husband, John, is a good father, but John will say he tolerates her Christianity. He's weary of her religion, and if he's honest, he has one foot out the door. His imagination takes him there. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll read uh, from verse 12 down through verse 16. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? Now, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Now, I have to admit, this sermon um, is a hard sermon to preach. And it's a hard sermon to preach because there are people that you know, that I know, that are in this very situation. And Paul's main point in this passage is very simple. And it's very countercultural. And one day, if we're on YouTube, this, this video is going to get cut and people are going to look for my home address. But it's this. Stay married 
unless your unbelieving spouse deserts you. Stay married. Stay married unless your unbelieving spouse deserts you. Now, in this context, Paul, of course, is talking about uh, sex within marriage. People said, well, if we should just be holy, let's abandon sex in marriage. And Paul says, no, 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 sex is good. You should enjoy sex as a married couple. That's what it's for. It's for the glory of the Lord. It's for the procreation of children. It's for the intimacy of husband and wife. And then he goes through and he starts addressing individual specific situations. And he says to the rest in verse 12, Who's the rest? It's all those he hasn't yet addressed, which would be a believer married to an unbeliever. He says, you should stick it out. Believing husband or wife, you cannot divorce your spouse. Stay with them. And then he says in verse uh, 15 and 16, the passage we're looking at today, but, gives a contrast, but if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them do it. So, the main point is you stay married unless your unbelieving spouse deserts you. Now, I want to invite you into the marriage of two couples. The first couple is um, Sarah and John. Sarah became a Christian very early in their marriage. John is not a Christian. Sarah is a full-time mom. She is active in women's Bible studies at church, and between caring for her husband and her kids and attending Bible studies and shuttling the kids to soccer, uh, she is uh, trying to be attentive to her husband. She is very good at maintaining balance. If you saw Sarah, you would just think she has it all together. Her husband, John, is a good father, but John will say he tolerates her Christianity. He's weary of her religion, and if he's honest, he has one foot out the door. His imagination takes him there a lot. And it's pretty emotionally tough on Sarah. You see Sarah and John? Second couple, Stephen and Nancy. Stephen became a Christian more recently in their 20-year marriage. Nancy tried church with him a few times, but she found the gospel too difficult to swallow in those ladies' Bible studies, ridiculously sentimental, in her words. She's a modern woman, and she deeply loves Stephen, but she simply isn't interested in religion, and she has lots of questions. So both Sarah and Stephen are married to unbelievers. And they both want to be faithful to the Messiah's teaching, to be faithful to their marriage, even when it's hard, and even when their spouse doesn't share the same worldview that they share. Do you have friends in mind that remind you of Sarah and Stephen? And they both, Sarah and Stephen, have to endure people's sneers at church when they come. They sneer at them because they just, they just see it in the way they look at them, like... Don't they know that you should not be yoked with an unbeliever? And Sarah and Stephen just ooze with grace. They're like, we, we, of course we get that. When we were married, we were both unbelievers. But I've become a Christian since my marriage. And so that verse is, I wasn't un unequally yoked. And so they have to face even the church looking at them with suspicion. Ladies in the pew staring down at them as though somehow they're superior. Now, Stephen and Sarah are your friends, and they come to you and they ask you for encouragement on how you would encourage them in their marriage. What do you say? Uh, married couples, what, what do you say 
as a person of integrity in your own marriage when marriage is tough, in the way that you help your spouse look to Jesus if they are a Christian and you live a life of utmost integrity, Lord willing, if, if they are not. Singles, if you've not committed uh, to celibacy your entire life, are you praying for your future spouse that they're a Christian and that you pursue someone who treasures the Lord with you? Church, are we fostering an environment where people can come to this church with marriages that are messy and that are broken? Because the greatest stain on the church are people who have to fake like they've got it all together when they show up. And the only place in the world where the only requirement for membership is to admit that you don't have it all together. And somehow we spin that around as though you have to pretend you've got it all together here. No, you don't. You don't have to pretend. But that requires a level of vulnerability that is very countercultural and very hard. And that's what you've been invited into here. And it's going to take time. I've heard all of your excuses about becoming part of a community group. And it's going to take effort. But it's worth it. So let's counsel Stephen. Let's counsel Sarah as we move through here. First, Paul knows that this is hard. And he says to them that they are to pursue a call. They are to pursue a call that is deeper than marriage. Look, look in the verse with me. Uh, he says, if your unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. It's as though uh, Pastor Paul is just dropping that little nugget in there to say you are to pursue a peace that is deeper than marriage. It is deeper than marriage. And if you have that peace... It allows you to be fueled with energy and motivation and desire to pursue your spouse when they are just running the other way from you. You know, in, um, in our day and age, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to get a divorce, does it? doesn't take much. You know, in, 19, in, in the 60s, in 1969, was the first time when, when Thomas Jefferson, it's a long story, Thomas Jefferson act, promoted no-fault divorce very early in our country. But in 1969, it became a law in California, first state in the union, to actually legalize no-fault divorce. Before the 1960s, you, you had to require, you had to show adultery or abandonment or cruelty variously defined as, as legitimate reasons for divorce. You need to bring evidence. But in 1969, in California, no-fault divorce became all the rage. And proponents of no-fault divorce said, well, listen, it's not going to increase the number of divorces because people are just going to make up reasons to get divorced anyway. They have for decades in this country made up stories of adultery just in order for this couple to not have to stand each other any longer and get divorced. And so this charade act of pretending that one of us has, has been unfaithful is old. Let's just have no-fault divorce. And soon, by 1985, South Dakota was the last state in our country to, to legalize no-fault divorce. And people thought, well, it won't increase the number of divorces. But the truth of the matter is the number of divorces in this country doubled in the 30 years after that law was passed. Every year. So you go from half a million divorces a year to 1.2 million uh, divorces every year right after that law was passed. And today, most of us have friends, even in the church, that think of divorce as, as mar or marriage is merely about self-fulfillment. Marriage really is a, um, it's a commercial venture. It's economic for a lot of people. 
Marriage is temporary. In fact, it's been defined as a temporary association of, as individuals. And Stephen and Sarah would tell you that this passage is hard for them because they're married to somebody who doesn't share their gospel aspirations and desires. And, and week after week when they attend church, they have to endure the sneer of the person most intimately known to them. It's incredibly hard. And it doesn't seem fair, does it? Like in this verse, the, the Christian is not allowed to leave, but the non-believer can. doesn't seem fair for some people. So how do you counsel Sarah and Stephen? Well, the beautiful picture that the Bible gives to us of marriage and what we call biblical theology is that in the beginning, God created marriage to be a beautiful picture of his faithfulness to his people. In Genesis chapter 2, he says, it's not good that man shall be alone, but that he satisfies man with Eve, Adam with Eve. And Adam leaves his father and mother, a crucial part of marriage. You leave your extended family and you cleave to your spouse. And there are struggles in our marriages even to this day. I know them, you know them, where people have not left their father and mother. Their father and mother are always there. Metaphorically or sometimes figuratively, they haven't cleaved and they haven't become one flesh. But it says to leave your father and mother and to cleave to your wife and you too shall become one flesh. And this beautiful marriage in the garden was all that it was meant to be. But Adam, passive in the garden, allowed Eve to be tempted and give in to the serpent. And all of sin shot through creation and into the human heart. And so you have Lamech, who's taking many wives in Genesis chapter 4 and on and on. You have, you have uh, deception within marriage very soon. And then you get to this, uh, this amazing season of, of, of wisdom literature where you see Song of Solomon, where you see Solomon pulling back and saying marriage is beautiful. And the intimacy of a husband and wife is a picture of Christ's love of his church. And you have uh, Solomon writing Proverbs to say, men, don't walk down that alleyway where the harlot is waiting for you. Get your eyes off of pornography because it destroys marriages. And, you, and he says to, to the women in, in Proverbs 31, oh, be a woman of godliness and serve and pursue the Lord and live out your calling in beautiful ways. And you can see Solomon, the man whose marriage life was a total disaster, having these amazing glimpses of this is God's creative purpose of marriage and just giving us a little foretaste of it in the Song of Solomon and then in the Proverbs. And then in the New Testament, you see in Ephesians chapter 5, this beautiful mystery of Christ's love for his church where this relationship becomes a beautiful picture of the Lord's faithfulness to his church, his bride. And in Revelation, you see the ultimacy of marriage. So that time you get to Revelation, after Babylon, you know, it says the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication in, in Romans chapter 19 has been judged by God. And the victorious saints rejoice that the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. I mean, the whole of the Bible is written in almost this marriage metaphor that's beautiful. The marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride, the church, has made herself ready, Revelation chapter 19. And then she is clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. And just like we are now, though our marriages are stained and soiled and, and we've struggled, you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. 
and you can do it. Covered in his righteousness, your Father in heaven sings over you. Stephen and Sarah, don't, they do not have the affirmation of their spouse, but they have the affirmation of their heavenly Father who sings over them with their love. And they say, when you don't understand God's word, just trust that it is true and lean into it. And the Lord will begin to bless you with this amazing sense of adoption as his daughter and as his son that will carry you through. It's hard. God has called you to a peace that is deeper than marriage. Stephen has um, in his office um, a little note that he wrote one time to Sarah. He, I mean, to his wife, not Sarah. That's weird. Two different couples. Stephen is married to Nancy. Sarah is married to John. Stephen um, has a note in his office that says, faithfulness. I belong to you, Nancy, and to no other. And I will work to protect our relationship, especially sexually, both in what I do and in my imagination. And he says this to her. Sarah said to John, you should be thankful that you're married to a Christian. <laughs> she said with a smile, and, and she wasn't angry. And um, he received it well, and he smiled back. You should be thankful that you're married to a Christian because you know what? I'm the chief of sinners in this house, she says to her husband. And the gospel has taught me that I'm going to be quick to repent to you because I want to make this thing work between us. I love you. And it's hard. When I go to church without you, I, I hate it. It's hard. But I don't want you to feel like I'm pulling you there. And she also has a thing to, to say to her husband. And she writes, um, Stephen writes of faithfulness. And um, she writes of, of humility. That I hope to confess my wrongs even before you confess yours. If you see them before I do, and there are times that I know that will happen, then I will work as your wife to hear what you have to say. And I will speak to you about my interests, but I will also consider your interests as especially important. And that doesn't mean I'll let you do whatever you want, and I don't expect you to let me do whatever I want. We're in this thing together. But marriage is the unity of two different people, real couple, having a real heart-to-heart. There will be times when it's good and right for you to consider my interests, and I will also consider yours. That's part of marriage, buddy. I will treat you with respect, and when you see me blowing these things, I will listen. And Stephen says, openness to Nancy. I have nothing to hide. I know that secrets are lethal to relationships, and so I will promise to be open to you about the things that you should know. These are things that he said to her after he became a Christian to help strengthen their marriage. He addressed the elephant in the room, and he said, I'm just going to be honest with you. I want to be totally open with you. I will speak to you about my joys and my hurts and my fears and other things that are on my heart. I will even speak to you about the times that I think, quite frankly, Nancy, that you're being a jerk though I will say those things with awareness that I can be a much bigger jerk. You might feel as though you're in comp competition with my church or with me for my affection, but the truth is that the more I love Jesus, the more I will love you. And so I will talk about Jesus with you, because how can I not? 
We talk about the things that we love. And if I'm driving you crazy, let me know. And I'll try to talk about Jesus in a way that is less offensive. <laughs> for both of them, love was the motivating factor for them because they are in the midst of their marriage. They are pursuing this call that Paul has given them to pursue peace. It is a very honest and raw and difficult call. They are pursuing shalom. And the best way that Sarah and Stephen know to do this through counselors and in their own experience is to write these words down and to share them with their spouse. And for Stephen, he keeps them in his desk at his office to remind them of these truths because it's hard. And when he's tempted by a Christian woman at church he, or at work, he goes, I'm committed to Nancy. I'm committed to her. And I'm going to read this again and again and again and again. I'm going to pound it into my brain so that I remember it. I'm faithful to her. I'm open to her, and I love her. He's pursuing that shalom that the gospel tells us about, this holistic peace, not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of real harmony and strife in their marriage. And notice that it's the Christians who are taking the lead to have these hard conversations. And in your own marriage, are you taking the lead to have those hard conversations? Are you praying if you're not yet married and not committed to celibacy, are you praying for your courage to be able to do that when you are married? These are the kinds of things we talk about as married couples if we are to pursue peace. Now, humility in their marriage doesn't, doesn't mean like, oh, shucks, honey, I'm not a very good person. Like humility means that they face up to all the struggles and the hurts and maybe even some of the reasons why their spouse is not a Christian because they see their own unfaithfulness or inconsistencies and they're humbled by it and they move into it. And you know, you know why they're able to do that is because week after week when they come to church, they look in a room full of broken people who are also doing the same thing. And it's beautiful for them. And they want more than anything for their wife to know Jesus, to love Jesus. They want more than anything. And they are, they are gardeners in their marriage to keep the soil fertile for Jesus to grow something beautiful out of them. But the reality is, not in Sarah or Stephen's situation, they're still married to their spouses, but the reality is that some of us are in marriages or have experienced this or you have friends that have or parents that have where the unbelieving spouse chooses to leave. And notice, notice what does it say? It says, let it be so. And so for those who are, if you're abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, you have new freedoms, Yes, you have new freedoms. And those, those freedoms mean that, that you are able, like, you're not to, you're not to um, demand that they stay. You're not to, to nag them to death. Like, you're to pursue peace in that marriage. And sometimes peace means you let them go. What pursues peace? You let them go. Because how do you know that even if you let them go, that won't be the means by which God draws them back? That's what Paul asks rhetorically in, in verse 16. You don't know that. But you must pursue peace. But it's as though Paul is saying, but if you nag him, if you ball and chain him, if you basically say, I can't believe you would do this. How dare you? Perhaps less likely it is for them to see the grace and beauty of God. Although we all know in marriages there's raised voices oftentimes and we all know that we say things that we often regret. The text doesn't say you shouldn't plead with your spouse to stay, by the way. 
And as Christians, we should plead with them to stay. Because we're Christians and we, we are committed. We made vows. We want to cherish those vows until death do us part. And we know that there are untold benefits. I could get up here and give you a TED Talk of the benefits of marriage, right, just from a secular perspective, but I won't. There's untold benefits of marriage to your children and to you physically. For example, if you're married, you will live longer. Studies have shown. But there are new freedoms that you have. And one of those freedoms is you are now no longer enslaved. You're going to see this, this word again later, enslaved, about bound. You'll see it in a couple of weeks when Nathan Duke preaches. Uh, the, the word bound or enslaved is this, this idea that, that you, you are restricted, that, that, that you're enslaved, that you're literally that, in, in bondage. You're no longer in bondage to that vow. You are now free to marry again if you desire, but only in the Lord. You're also free to remain unmarried should you desire. You have new freedoms, but you also have new resources. Did you know that? And the new resources are resources that everybody in this room actually has. And one day in glory, one of the things that we're going to be shocked by are the number of resources we had at our disposal that we never actually attended to, like the resource of prayer. The resource of crying out to the Lord for his mercy and grace to give you wisdom on how to pursue peace in a difficult marriage. The, the resource of his word. The resource of the Lord's table. The resource of the community of faith, the local church. Each of us have vowed together to help each other. Like, like we should be the strongest fighters for each other's marriage there is. And when somebody comes to you because they have having marriage struggles, you should not be surprised by that. But you should embrace and love and encourage and strengthen and help them with all of your might because it takes a village to save a marriage. You have the resources of this local church, the body of believers, the corporate church gathered. You also have the resources of your community group, a more intimate group of friends. Like, if your community groups don't get beyond chips and dip, you're going to one day in glory be shocked by the resource you had in those people that you never you actually got to know. Lower the barriers of, knowledge, of, 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 of uh, obstacles of getting to know them. And like, don't be, you have to share the deepest, darkest, intimate secrets of your life, but just allow them to get to know you and you to know them. And see what the Holy Spirit is going to do. It may shock you how beneficial that community group is. You have the church, you have the community group, you also have your session, you have the elders of the church. I mean, I mentioned earlier the, the, the image of the, the elders singing over us in, in worship. It was beautiful to see a couple of our elders just singing over us. But you know, also this Tuesday night, we have a session meeting. We pray for your marriages. And if you need prayer for your marriage, please come. We want to pray over you. And I know there are some that will be there Tuesday night for us to pray and anoint and pray for healing for them. We want to be able to do that. And you need that to happen because it is possible in this world to be divorced de jour by law, but not be divorced de facto in the eyes of the Lord. Like you can be divorced legally, but still be married in the eyes of the Lord when you divorce for unbiblical reasons. And so you need the church and you need the session of the church to speak into the life of your marriage struggles. If you, particularly if your marriage um, is struggling, because it says, who can, who can leave? The unbeliever can leave. 
Well, how do you know if your spouse is an unbeliever? Lest the elders of your church come around you and affirm you that indeed your spouse is an unbeliever. And you have the freedom to allow that divorce. It's incredibly painful. But is what I'm saying connecting with you? Do you have friends like Sarah and Stephen that are in this situation that are coming to you for help? And I hope that you would invite them into your community group. Like, I hope that you would open your arms wide to them and say, come be part of us. Let's, our marriage has got struggles. Your marriage has got struggles. Let's talk about them together. Let's fight for them together. Because the beautiful picture of the gospel is that the Lord has given us these resources and that we are to lean into them. For all four, for Sarah and for John, for Stephen and for Nancy, they know that it takes hard work in their marriage. For all four of them. And for Sarah and for Stephen, they are standing before the church as though I'm standing before you now. And they are saying, please stand with us. Help us. Strengthen us. Ask questions of us. Encourage us. Pray for us. Go to bat for us. Help us. Be a good example to our spouses because we long for them to know Jesus. The number of kids who, in our public school system and in our private school system and in our home school system in this town who are the products of divorce staggers my imagination. And it is in the church where we become the healing balm of restoration for them and healing. Picking up those pieces and pointing them to Jesus. Because what God created in the garden Beautiful one union, the beauty of marriage, will be brought to consummation in the end when Christ fully sanctifies his bride, the church, and we walk down adorned in the splendor of his holy righteousness, and Jesus takes delight in us. And Jesus takes delight in you, by the way. He sings over you. And if you're here and you have not received the strength that comes from Christ being your Savior, then today is the day of salvation. He wants to welcome you into a peace that is far deeper than marriage. It's far deeper than anything you've experienced. And it can be yours. As you come to this Lord's table, you pray. You pray for Sarah and for Stephen's marriage, this fictitious couple of couples that we've talked about today. And you pray for your own and you grab your spouse's hand and you say, honey, we're in this together. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.